that pretty steep decline. I think people are just skidding out right there. Mm, damn, that sucks. Yeah, it was almost like black ice. Yeah. Because I was actually talking to some of my coworkers about this earlier, and I wasn't sure if you had an opinion. If not, then that's fine, too. But um, did you hear or have you been hearing about the whole J.K. Rowling thing? Yes. Um, supposedly, she's like super anti-trans. Yeah, that's been going on for years, man. That. Yeah, because of the game coming out. Exactly. So with Hogwarts Legacy coming out, people are like trying to boycott and say like anyone that's streaming and like trying to promote the game, I guess they're they're getting shitted on. I don't know. I wanted to see what it was that made everyone hate her. And, you know, I was kind of going through some of the comments and everything. I will say that she she's not very apologetic about much. No. So if she says something and puts her foot in her mouth, she kind of just. She doubles down. She doubles down and she almost digs herself deeper, you know, and like kind of she makes does. it worse than yes. what it was. Exactly. Also, at the same time, I don't think some of the like most of the stuff actually is as bad as people are making out to be. There were some where I'm just like, mm, OK, yeah, could have done without that. And we're not going to get into specifics here because that's not what we're talking about. But yeah. So like part of the very, the very group of people that, you know, that she kind of like saved in ways are now, like, having identity crises and stuff. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because uh, there'll be people who are like, you know, Harry Potter saved my life, and they have, like, Harry Potter tattoos and stuff like that, and all of a sudden, (laughs) oh, the very person who created this entire world says that I'm not a person. This is where I think it's kind of annoying is that people are not able to separate the artist the art from the artist you know like we've we've talked about this several times in other episodes but yes yeah, so, um, people do the thing is harry potter itself like the world is not anti-trans she might be yeah. the author yeah. but people can still have these harry potter tattoos and whatnot because it means a lot to them it helped them through a, a tough time in their life or whatever the case yeah i'm not gonna lie i i i try to you know line her pockets as little as possible myself but at the same time if i want to enjoy it i will so like if i if i ever decide that i have time to play the game i'll probably buy it and play it but do i agree with her no <laughs> like i said i i don't really follow her i i couldn't give two shits about what she's doing personally i, I never thought she was like interesting as a person or anything like that so i never wanted to follow her but i enjoyed the books had a blast with the movies i'm gonna play the shit out of that game believe that so I just want to get your ideas on what's going on with that. And uh, what house are you? Slytherin. Woot woot. I am Hufflepuff, rocking the badger. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to thank you again for having us over for the Super Bowl because that was a lot of fun. It was it was a yeah. blast meeting uh, your guys' friends as well. And it looked like a good game. Unfortunately, I was on call that weekend, so right. it kind of dampered a lot of the experience. I, I saw most of the game. I just didn't see like the most important part, which is the last two minutes. I know. <laughs> and shout out to the halftime show, Rihanna, right? Yeah. I don't know how in the heck. All I have to say is that if I was up on a platform that was swaying the way it was, Hail pregnant. No. I thought it was funny because um, I, I don't remember what uh, his name was, Andrew's friend, that was sitting on the couch next to me. Jarrell? Oh, no. Uh, Chris. Chris? So Chris. I remember telling Chris, why do those platforms, when they did the wide shot, why does this look like a Super Smash Brothers level? And I saw so many people saying the same thing online. It, was, hilarious. it was hilarious. Yeah. And people, a lot of people were complaining like, oh, she wasn't moving. She wasn't dancing. I'm like, A, she's pregnant. Yeah. And B, she was up on a platform a million feet in the air. I wouldn't be moving either at all. And obviously she was tethered to the thing, but still. 
don't know if you can hear that. My mom just turned on the sink. <laughs> Perfect timing. She's just like, oh, right. are you are you guys recording? Let me go ahead and just turn on the garbage disposal. <laughs> How are you doing, everybody? Welcome to Affliction Autos Podcast, episode 22. My name is Eric, and the other voice occupying your head this time is a proud mother of three, Lab Geek, my sister and co-host, Stephanie. That's the true true. Thank you to all the listeners out there for joining us. The show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as well as Samsung Podcasts, Player FM, and Podchaser. You're just making some of this up. No, these are actually real, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sometimes, because I have like a list of ones that I haven't mentioned yet, so I just kind of go through those. But yeah, some of these I'm just like, I have never heard of these. They're like Apple Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, Kellogg Podcasts. <laughs> Let's not forget, we're also on YouTube at Affliction Autos Podcast, so go check us out there. If that's a real place, I don't even know what YouTube is. It sounds fake. Right. <laughs> As always, new episodes drop on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. This is a monthly podcast where we primarily talk about films that range from mind-numbing to mind-blowing. Sometimes we also cover TV shows or other forms of media. Of course, we will also be getting into spoilers here, and there will be only the healthiest amount of expletives tossed in. You have been warned. If you ain't ready, then get ready, because in this episode, we will be discussing the epic fantasy sci-fi cloud atlas released in 2012 directed by the wachowskis and tom tickver what i thought we were doing jupiter ascending oh hell no just kidding <laughs> even i don't even think i would want to do that one as like a joke episode have you seen that one i have and i just remember i don't like it just wasn't that memorable like i didn't i didn't hate it but i didn't love it but i didn't hate it because i just didn't remember it there was just something annoying about it i felt like the story was really convoluted and the characters weren't really that interesting it was really flashy but with not a lot of substance in my opinion yeah and it's definitely one of the weaker ones because we know what the wachowskis are capable of and when they came out with that shit like the trailers look cool you know like the Mm -hmm. the the flashy visuals make for a good trailer but when i was watching i'm just like I don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't care about any of these characters. It, it's funny because they had some, like, Eddie Redmayne, fantastic actor. I'm like, what the fuck is he doing in this movie? <laughs> and that Channing Tatum. Yeah, I don't mind Channing Tatum or Mila Kunis, but I felt like this was terrible for both of them. This was, yeah. like, their worst role. I know. So, yeah, back to the topic at hand. <laughs> the actually good Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. So this is based off of a 2004 novel of the same name, written by David Mitchell. I know that, you know, typically novels, they incorporate a lot more detail. So I, I kind of wonder what stuff they left out of this movie. I was reading uh, for the, the first time, I want to say, I actually have not read the source material. I haven't read the book. Did you even know that there was a book? I, I did. Am I interested in reading the book? I'm not actually sure. But mm. I would. I did read a synopsis on the book just to see how close it was. And it actually seemed pretty close. Really? Okay. The only difference, the only major difference is that it didn't jump around as much. It was more contained to like one time frame. It actually went chronologically forward. So it started in the past and worked its way all the way to... The far future one, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a, a pyramid. So like it worked its way up to the future and did like part one, part one, part one of, of the first five stories. 
did all of the sixth story and then did part two going backwards in time all the way back to the past. The hell? So it, it actually showed the what happened in reverse chronological order. After compl- so I wonder what made them want to complete the latest timeline in whole and then kind of just work backwards. At first, if I, re- if I understood it correctly, like each one was learning about the past. So it would tell you a bit of the story. I guess each each section they're they're learning about like it's happening, and then you find out how the next one learns about the previous one. That's kind of the link, yeah. So it's basically the movie, kind of sort of, except the movie jumps around way more, like back and forth a lot between all of them. You know, that's the thing about Cloud Atlas is that the movie is that it has the the multiple plots. You know, the different uh, timelines or not timelines because this is essentially one timeline. It's just. Uh, happening over a span of many many years i would say i would say it's a i would say it's different timelines i don't know because it's all linked though you know so they are they are all linked um you imply you assume that you know the main character is getting reincarnated or whatever based on that birthmark which i i think if i I, i'm pretty sure that actually exists in the book Hmm. In the movie, I think they're trying to make everybody like reincarnate. But I mean, the main character—the main character—is a different actor in each scene, in each section. Right, right. Each time frame, each era has like a different person that focuses on uh, mainly. And that person is a reincarnated person in the book. Like you said, it's six different eras, and um, this is an ensemble cast as well. So there are some big names in this movie. And I I really love this movie because of the fact that they have this ensemble cast and then they just kind of shuffle them every single time. So they play Mm -hmm. drastically different roles. It seems like they had a lot of fun with it too, kind of performing because it's challenging, you know, like the character you just played in this era is going to be way different and they play around with so many different elements. It's cool to kind of like try to pick them out and see like, all right, so who's, who's the main character in this one? Who's the villain? That villain was like the main character in the last one. So I like how they just totally flip it. Yeah. And like I was saying with the ensemble cast, I'm going to just name who's in this movie really quick, but I'm not going to explain their characters because there's so many freaking characters and we're just going to name them as we come across them in each of the uh, eras. So we got Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, Susan Sarandon, Keith David, Ben Wishaw, Jim Sturgis, Duna Bai, and more, you know, that <laughs> aren't listed here. But yeah, there's so many people in this movie, and I, th- I feel like they all do a fantastic job, honestly. Yes, they do. I agree. Due to the fact that the cast members have so many varying roles, I think it would just be less confusing and easier for the listeners to follow if we just cover the eras as a whole instead of jumping around because the way that yeah, the, chronologically. the way it's edited is that it kind of like progresses each era at the same time, you know, and it kind of mm-hmm. completes them around the same time. Yeah, so it jumps around a lot and it's kind of confusing. Like the first time you watch it, I think the first time I watched it, I was we saw it in the theater with dad, didn't we? I think so. Yeah. He looked like he was super into it. It was super confusing the first time, but I was into it. And so I watched it again and I caught a lot more, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I've seen this movie so many times. I want to say like, I want to say a good eight times at least. Oh, damn. You chose to do this movie for this episode. So what made you actually want to pick this movie? We're, I think we we're trying not to do like a comedy or comic book movie again, right? <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> because we've done too many of those. So recently. we were trying to, yeah, we were trying to do something serious, and I was like, you know what? This is a movie that I really like. 
So we can start with the very earliest era, which is the, it, it kind of mainly takes place in the Pacific Islands in 1849. So we will completely cover that storyline and then we'll tell you when we move on to the next one. Imagine if we if we jumped around as much as the movie did, then this conversation would be just as confusing as your first time watching that movie. I would be confused. <laughs> so in the Chatham Islands, uh, American lawyer Adam Ewing, played by Jim Sturgis, meets the odd Dr. Henry Goose, played by Tom Hanks. Man, this guy is a fucking creeper. Like, I, there's just something uncomfortable about him, you know, the way he looks and the fact that he's digging for teeth at this beach. So that way he can like sell them. Yeah, seriously. He was, he was weird. And obviously Tom Hanks playing him, you know, he does a great job. Great job. Yeah. And this is funny too, because this is the first time we're seeing Tom Hanks in the movie and he's, <laughs> he's kind of like already, you know, like an uncomfortable person to, to talk to and interact with. So mm-hmm. um, you don't really expect that from Tom Hanks because he, you know, he's usually kind of like the, that likable character, but I bet this is a fun role for him to play. Definitely. You know what? I think they're all fun roles for him. And I've, I read that he was the biggest proponent of this movie. Oh, really? So he was the one that was really pushing for it? Yes, because funding got pulled for it at some point. And he was like, we're not doing the movie. We're not doing the movie. You know, he's as soon as like and as soon as they they okayed, you know, doing it, he was like, OK, I'm on a plane. I'm coming right now kind of thing. And then everyone else was like, Tom's on a plane. I guess I'm going to get on a plane kind of thing. So. You know, I feel like if they can lock in a big renowned actor like Tom Hanks, that would be a big win for them in terms of casting everyone else because you're like, hey, we have the backing of Tom Hanks. It's going to be a decent movie at the very least. Yeah. If they cast the right people and and they just kind of write the movie in a uh, intriguing way, then I feel like it only goes up from there. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the, I feel like the writing has to be good, too, because you can cast good people, but if the writing sucks. Right. Yeah. And that's that's all saying, like the writing's important, too. So Dr. Henry Goose, um, if you're confused as to why he was digging up teeth, sacrifices were always being done at this beach. And so there was a lot of bones and bodies that were left. But why just the teeth? I'm thinking, like, is was there something? Oh, maybe he was looking for, like, fillings or something? Exactly. Or... Yeah. Like gold fillings or something. So yeah. I think uh, he was he was finding those and he was just, like, pocketing them. But it's just like, imagine having like a pocket of just like nothing but teeth. Right. And uh, Ewing, so he seems to be having uh, a little bit of a heat stroke later on. Like he's there to kind of get this contract signed and everything. And um, it seems like he's kind of striking up a deal to bring some slaves back. Uh, yeah, I think it was like a slave deal. Um, and he needed to get this, uh, I think it was like a missionary or something, right? The guy, mm. that he, was, he needed to get a signature. But he's from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so he's not used to this tropical island he this is new zealand he's a prissy boy um, area yeah and so uh he's like struggling hard in the heat and he's like how do you people live out here like this and of course he's wearing full suit oh yeah kind of thing you know that probably didn't help he's wearing like five layers and it's and like he's wearing 100 black. plus de- degrees outside yeah <laughs> yeah adam ewing is kind of walking through the village and everything and he's looking at the tribesmen and he hears the sound off in the distance, you know, this like cracking. And so he was like, okay, let's, let's go check out. Eventually he gets to the whipping site, I guess. He sees that one of the slaves is, is being whipped at the post. And um, he seems kind of horrified by, by the, yeah. the 
image of it like he's just like what i feel the like heck? it would be a, a horrifying thing to to have to see in real life to be honest so i kind of don't blame him especially someone that has never been in that situation before mm-hmm. and so i don't think he quite understood how the whole concept of slaves even works you know because it's mm-hmm. like you're straight up forcing these people to work for you against their will they don't have a choice to him he's probably just like oh yeah we're just hiring them but you know he's kind of seeing the uh, the other side of it yeah I mean, I'm sure he logically knows what's going on, but like he doesn't. Yeah, I don't think he he quite knew how how the meat was made. I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, he he makes eye contact with the guy that's being whipped, and then he eventually just collapses from the heat stroke in the dirt, and everyone's all you know mm-hmm. concerned for him. And uh, he wakes up shortly after they. Uh, I think they brought him back to like a bed, and uh, Doctor Goose is there, and he tells him that he has some sort of parasitic worm or some shit. And uh, mm-hmm. he needs to take this like treatment. So it's like a series of, of doses, uh, some sort of elixir, right? We don't mm-hmm. know what the hell this elixir is, but he it seems like he had it either readily available or he like concocted it, you know, on the I spot. I think he was making it because he's like staring it right there, you know? Yeah. I don't know if that like activates it or if he's like giving it the illusion of like activating mm-hmm. it. But yeah, he's, he's kind of giving it to him in like a little dropper in his mouth. So yeah, he's, he's taking this, this treatment and uh, it's supposed to help him get rid of that parasitic worm. Eventually, him and the doctor, uh, Adam Ewing and uh, Doctor Goose. Goose, they start selling back. You know, they take the ship and they're they're returning back to America. Yeah, he he's actually put what isn't in the cargo hold or whatever because they're afraid that the worm is contagious. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, I guess it kind of worked out better for him because there Ewing discovers a stowaway. So yeah. that stowaway was that slave that he made eye contact with at the uh, whipping post. So his name is Atua. I think that's uh-huh. how you pronounce it. Played by David Gyasi. And uh, he actually pleads for Ewing to help him and kind of keep his presence on the, the ship secret because, you know, if he's found out about, they'll just toss his ass over or, or kill yeah, exactly. him. But either way, he's going to die because they're in the middle of the ocean. And he asks him, like, why were you getting whipped? Uh, and he explains that he has been on the seas since he was 10. And so he's... I don't know, too too much of a wild spirit to be a slave, and he can't follow the rules. Yeah, so what what that translates to them is that he's a troublemaker. Yeah. And he, he needs to be taught a lesson, put in his place. But, you know, also at the same time, what that tells the audience is that he's a skilled sailor. He's experienced, and so he's not yeah. afraid of working on a ship. I don't know how long it was before they discovered him. Like, I don't know if maybe he was hiding in a different part of the ship, and then well, eventually... He, he actually asked him. He, he asked him. He asked uh, Adam he to to um, kind of plead his case, uh, you know, convince him that he's that he could earn his keep. But he ends up telling the captain, of course, and so they haul him on deck. Yeah, this is a pretty awesome scene. It has like the the suspense. The captain makes it seem like he's like, okay, yeah, like, oh yeah, show us what you can do, kind of thing. We'll give him, yeah, we'll give him a fair chance. And um, so he's just like, yeah, if you're an experienced sailor, like Ewing said, then go ahead and show it to us. Like, go ahead and uh, you know draw the sail or whatever he told him to do. And so you know he starts doing his thing, and he's actually and you know, he's already impressive right out the gate. He's like climbing up the the post really quickly and just with a rope around the the pole and. And the captain, he already planned in his mind, like, either way, whatever whatever he does, yeah. we're going to kill him. So he's telling his guy to get the rifle ready, and Ewing sees this, so, you know, he deflects the shot. Like, he points the gun away just as he tries to shoot him, and uh, 
it was cool because the whole time, obviously, you know, Atua is oblivious to this because he's just like trying to like haul ass and get shit done. And yeah. Uh, yeah, he comes down and he gets the job done and impresses everyone. So that was pretty awesome to see. It was really awesome. I would even say it looked like he was probably better at the job than everyone else on the ship. Uh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. So he was like, all right, we'll keep him on board. And at, since he was able to become a regular member of the crew, he's the one who starts taking care of Adam as he gets worse and worse. Ewing has been taking the, the elixir and he, he doesn't seem to be getting worse. better. Yeah. Something's off. Like, obviously, something's not right here. The medicine just wasn't as good back then, so... Or not. Around this time, we start to see ulterior motives as Dr. Goose is treating Ewing. At one point, he removes the waistcoat and he, like, cuts off, like, little jewels from the buttons, you know? Yeah, the buttons from the waistcoat. And so, like, the buttons, I'm just like, why would they have jewels on them anyway? But <laughs> I guess I don't know if you noticed, fancy. but I'm pretty sure that that button on the waistcoat becomes the necklace in the very last of the far future one. The necklace that Zachary wears. I wasn't sure if it was the same jewel, but I feel like it was definitely made to look like the same thing. So I don't know if like him cutting it off eventually leads to like the people later in the story, but it definitely looked like it was the same color and everything. I think it was supposed to be. I think it was, I definitely think it was supposed to be. Okay. Um, Dr. Goose is, you know, everyone still thinks that he's just treating Adam. But eventually, Dr. Goose is about to administer the killing dose or whatever. And he basically starts confessing like a typical villain, Disney villain. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if Atua just hears him or or something, but he basically bursts in. I think he stumbles in. He's trying to check on Adam. And then he's just like, wait, what the fuck is going on here? Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't know. Maybe he wouldn't have resisted if he was just like, oh, you know, this is. Oh, I think he was like, oh, this is this night. He's getting worse. And this night is going to um, determine whether he lives or dies. Mm. And Atu is like, oh, I'll, I'll sit by him then. And um, that's when Dr. Goose is like, no, he said he doesn't want you near him and this and that. And he like shoves him out and, cl- and locks the door. And that's when Atu is like, yeah, something, no, something's, something, something's up. Something's up. And Goose is getting, yeah, he's, he's getting more impatient. And he's getting more yeah. aggressive and, and more rude. And his true side is starting to come out, you know, it's starting to be revealed. Yeah. He bursts his way back in and fights Dr. Goose and I guess realizes what's going on. And thankfully, he's winning and then he starts losing. (laughs) You know, comparing their physiques, I feel like Otto should have whooped that ass. Right? (laughs) Somehow Dr. Goose gets the upper hand and is about to choke Otto out. Adam manages to muster up the last snippet of his strength and lifts up his entire chest, which is indeed filled with gold, hits Dr. Goose over the head with him with it and kills him. So I, I thought this was a little weird because Adam's kind of coming to, I think he hears all the commotion and all of the, the fighting and everything going on right next to him. So I don't know if that like snaps him out of it. You know, he's still woozy. He's, he's feeling the effects of the uh, the poison that he's been ingesting this whole time. Mm-hmm. Those chests looked heavy as hell, and it was full of gold. How the hell are you going to lift that over your head? When you're that weak already. I could see if maybe he grabbed some sort of like pipe or like a rod or something and just like smacked him in the head, knocked him out, you know, or even like stabbed him in the back of the head. Something. Yeah. But I don't know. He managed. He managed. Yeah, a little, a little far-fetched. far-fetched. <laughs> I, I like this part where Atua, he makes him drink a bunch of seawater to flush him out. And I was mm-hmm. just like, man, that's rough. I think we've all been there. Like, 
I've almost drowned a couple times in my life, and when you right. when you ingest a uh, mouthful of ocean water, you immediately just gag and like want to throw up. Yeah, it's not great. But Altua helps him. Helps him. You know, he's still kind of weak, even when he's getting better at this point. But he's still kind of weak. Like he still helps him to his house, and where he uh, reunites back in San Francisco with his wife Tilda, and in San Francisco, and decides to burn that contract he's kind of seeing that this whole slave system is is pretty sad that him and his wife are gonna move east and join the abolitionist abolitionist either way uh his wife's or his father-in-law you know he's already pissed off that he destroyed the contract that he sailed out there for to begin with and then um he's like taking his daughter away so he's like wait what, what the hell is going on here and then lastly they're like oh by the way we're going to join the uh, abolition movement. The last nail in the coffin. Bam. Needless to say, he wasn't happy. Yeah, he was just in police says something along the lines of, oh, anything that you do is just going to be, you know, one drop in, in the ocean. It's not going to make a difference kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he says something along the lines of, what's an ocean but a multitude of drops? And you're just like, damn, that's deep. And that's actually from the book. It sounded like it was from the book. Yeah. It's very poetic. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen a lot of stuff with this guy, Jim Sturgis, but he seems like a good actor. I didn't get a chance to look him up, but I was wondering what else he was in that I may have seen. He's been in Across the Universe. I, I wonder if he's the main character in that one. I don't think I've seen that one. That's uh, one of Brenda's favorites. And he definitely shows up a lot more, so we'll be seeing more of, uh, oh, of yeah. him, Mr. Sturgis. So the next section is in 1936. Cambridge slash Edinburgh. 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 <laughs> so this one, uh, the main character is an aspiring young English composer, Robert Frobisher, played by Ben Wishaw. He's in love with this uh, this guy named Rufus Sixsmith, which sounds like a fake name to me. Right? What is a Sixsmith? The Sixsmith is played by James Darcy. And uh, it appears that they, they need to keep their relationship secret. You know, like either it's not accepted by society or it seems like it might just be more of like a um, status type of thing. You know, like maybe Six Smith is kind of in this position where he he can't be seen with a guy like Frobisher. I think they're just trying to hide their relationship. <laughs> this is uh, 1930s. So, yeah. And so you're not allowed to be gay. Yeah, it could be that. They're just scared of what people will think of their homosexual relationship. Yeah, that that was, that was definitely frowned upon. So Frobisher, you know, he's a struggling composer. He doesn't really have much money. And it, I don't know, it seems like he kind of like has to rely on Sixsmith for some of the stuff, like maybe shelter yeah. and stuff like that, too. So And a waistcoat. Yeah, and a waistcoat. More, the Most importantly, the waistcoat. He actually lands a job as a amanuensis. I'd actually look that up. What the fuck is that? <laughs> Basically recording recording music for mm-hmm. a composer. Yeah. So either someone that's like incapable or just uh, doesn't want to do it. So they, in the they book, he's else. going blind, but they don't mention that in the movie. Yeah. I didn't get any hints of that. It just seems like he's just old. Getting old. Yeah. So he's a amanuensis for the prestigious yet aging composer Vivian Ayers. I think that's how you pronounce it. Played by so. Jim Broadbent. He actually ends up moving into Ayers' estate. So that's in what? Edinburgh? Edinburgh. <laughs> Ayers is a is not only old, but he's like he's kind of senile. At least that's mm-hmm. I got hints of that myself. Yeah. And he's very full of himself. 
Very arrogant. Arrogant, yeah. And uh, I mean, that could be because of like his his status or whatever, uh, maybe his accomplishments as a composer. But um, it seems like Ayers is, you know, he definitely has diminishing levels of social skills. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he's he's overly rude, snappy, and um, he has no regard for privacy or being an inconvenience to other people. Definitely not. Everything's about him and what he wants, I think. So, right. As soon as he decides, I mean, because he's just going to dismiss Frobisher, but as soon as he decides that he's competent, he's like, okay, I can use you. He makes it, you know, he doesn't hide the fact that he's just using him. One of my favorite scenes is when, you know, he just wakes him up in the middle of the night because he's like, I just had a dream and I hear this melody in my dream and you need to write it down immediately. And so he's trying to uh, like sing it for him and explain it for him. And and he's just like, oh, damn, it, I lost it. So, you know, he's he's kind of like frustrated with Frobisher or Frobisher that he can't remember the song. And mm-hmm, so like it was his fault. So Frobisher is just like, whatever, you know, your your old ass can go back to sleep i'm just gonna work on my music and so he starts like you know playing this melody on the piano and he's just like oh that's that was the theme right there that's the one in my dream that was yeah that was the song of my dream i wonder if i wonder if it made its way into his dream because he'd be working on it at night while he was asleep and you know like the stuff that you hear while you i mean the stuff that goes Mm -hmm. on around you when you're asleep makes it into your dreams sometimes that's possible I'm, i'm wondering if he heard it because of that but the funny thing is that he he talked about the the neo soul future because he's like oh you know there's this restaurant and they're serving food and all the waitresses had the same face mm. and those were the fabricants you know interesting so that's what he was dreaming about interesting i didn't even catch that so my take on the melody thing i actually felt like this was kind of like foreshadowing a, a little bit further on in the story because he totally forgets it but then you know he starts hearing it when uh, frobisher is playing it so I think this is kind of this goes back to him being senile and him thinking that the music that Frobisher is working on is actually his doing like the yeah. music that he's coming up with. But Frobisher, he's learning a lot from errors and he's kind of putting it into practice and he's creating this on his own, you know, this original mm-hmm. song. Yeah. And then Ayers is thinking that, oh, this is my song. Yeah. We definitely see more of that later on in the story. When he threatens to leave, Ayers is like, no, you're going to finish my Cloud Atlas sextet and, you know, or I'm going to, you know, he blackmails him or whatever. Um, Another thing to mention is that while he's writing the sextet, he is inspired by Adam Ewing's story that is a book. Is he reading like a journal or something that he wrote? Yeah, it's like the it's like the published version of his journal. And the funny thing is that it's uh, he only has the first half of it. He he he, it's ripped it's ripped in half, mm-hmm. so he can't find the second half of it. And then um, he's writing to uh, to Sixsmith saying, "Oh, can you find this book for me? Because I want I really want to finish it." Mm-hmm. And I don't think he ever gets to to finish it. They're still working together on it. I think this is like right before they even uh, or he even names it. That's where Frobisher, it seems like he starts to have romantic feelings for Vivian Ayers, you know, like they're like working together. And I don't know if this is, do you think this is something that Frobisher, maybe it's like a, like a survival mechanism or something? Maybe because how could you, I don't care who you are. I don't, I don't see how you could fall for that guy. He's so, he's such a jerk, you know? Yeah. And it's, he's like twice his age from what it looks like. Yeah. You know? I don't know how old Frobisher is, but he looks like maybe early 20s. He look, yeah, exactly. He looks really young. And this guy looked like 
older than <laughs> double that. So yeah, he's standoffish and everything, but I don't know if maybe he, he sees the talent that airs possesses inside of him, even right. though in, inside the senile body. And then I guess he's, he might be attracted to that kind of thing. Frobisher makes a move on him. You know, he tries to like kiss like him or whatever. Caresses his face or something. Yeah. Starts leaning in and then Vivian obviously rejects this, but what's kind of interesting is that, I think Frobisher, you know, he kind of panics for a second. He's, he, like, gets freaked out and he's just like, oh, shit. Because I think he's expecting Ares to, like, really just, like, lash out. But, I don't know, he just kind of dismisses it. He almost embarrasses him by the fact that he just laughs it off. Yeah. You think they're, like, sharing a moment and Ares is like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. But Ares is pretty, I think he's pretty resourceful from what it seems like. You know, he he seems like he knows how to kind of play this underhanded game so i think he was Mm -hmm. thinking like i'm gonna use this against them at some point oh yeah oh uh on top of that so (laughs) this is even weirder right so vivian is married his young wife jacosta played by halle berry and later that night frobisher sneaks into the bedroom and and he steals the gun you know so he has that ready to go and i think it's it's important to note that he steals ahead of time because they don't want you to keep that on top of your mind they kind of want you to forget yeah. about that until towards the end. At one point, Jacosta and Frobisher have a secret affair. I was just like, what the fuck is going on in this house? <laughs> Seriously. It's actually even more convoluted in the book because there's a Jacosta and uh, Vivian have a daughter and he oh. has an affair in the book. He has an affair with Jacosta and the daughter. What the hell? And he actually falls. He's bi. Okay. And so he falls in love with the daughter in the book. He thinks he's fallen in love with the daughter, and I don't know what's going on with Six Smith at that point because you know in the movie, like he's very seemingly devoted to Six. Yeah, Smith, he's right? like he's, he's very much in love with Six Smith, but I think these are just like affairs or like in one the off. book he's like in love with in love with the daughter. So he actually when he when he does leave, even though despite the the threats of blackmail, he leaves. He actually gets a hotel close to the house so that he could stay close to the daughter, and he hopes that they're going to reunite. So is how old is the daughter then? Because that leads me to believe that. Jacosta and Vivian are kind of like both similar age ish. Maybe not. I mean, but at very least, Jacosta is older than she is in the book. She's mom age, you know, the age of a mom. And um, and I would say that the daughter is probably at least late teens, early twenties. Also, how did you think Jacosta looked in this one? Like, did you think she looked? I think she was pretty supposed. I think she was supposed to be pretty young. Okay, that's movie. what I thought too. You know, what yeah. I mean? But honestly, honestly, the prosthetics or whatever in this in you know in this time <laughs> still weren't that great i thought they're pretty good in, <laughs> Some of them in most cases bad. and i'm gonna ask you and i was gonna ask you at the end keep this in mind i was gonna ask you at the end which which ones you thought were the very worst the prosthetics yeah okay you know what like even though it's kind of weird with the whole dynamic in the house, Jacosta is like, it seems like she is happily married to heirs. It just doesn't seem like right. they re- interact a whole lot. And so it definitely doesn't she, seem like she hates well, being Or she married. tolerates it, you know? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe she's excited by the, the prospect of having this like, younger man in the house. I guess. And my thing is, I wasn't even sure if uh, Frobisher went through with it with Jacosta because he was actually sexually attracted to her or if he it seemed like maybe he just didn't want to stir up any trouble so it, he felt like if he had rejected her then maybe she would say she would go back to Vivian and say like you know he tried to rape me or whatever use it against him well i mean in the in the book he's bi so he he was he was with everybody but did you get a sense that Jacosta 
was kind of manipulating him as well, or she seemed. I feel like a little. I think I feel like she was kind of using him a little bit too, because I don't think she was sleeping with Vivian. Something tells me that Frobisher would be down for a three way with both of them. <laughs> right. Let's not think about that because it. <laughs> I will say, I actually thought that uh, the Jacosta Frobisher scene was a little hot. I'm not gonna lie, brother. <laughs> I wasn't hating it. All right. There are worse sex scenes that I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Halle Berry still got it. Let's just say that. I know. Yeah, that's true. Even when she's dressed as a white lady. It's almost like the longer Ayers and Frobisher, uh, Vivian Ayers, work on the masterpiece together. It's like the more Frobisher has taken the reins. You know, I feel like he, he kind of yeah. takes the the driver's seat, if you will. And uh, Ayers, more or less, he just fills in the gaps. So they're they're working on the masterpiece, and then that's where it's revealed that Frobisher came up with the name the Cloud Atlas Sextet. You know, if if we're following the whole reincarnation thing, when he was Adam Ewing, he was like completely submissive to his situation, and in this situation, he starts off more submissive and starts taking charge as he goes. You mean on. like the main character? Yeah, okay. because that's supposed to be like the. Whoever has that birthmark is the reincarnation, supposedly. So you know, if, if we're following that that theory or or whatever, then yeah, he his his this current reincarnation is, you know, learning a little bit from what happened last time and starting to transform his circumstances a little bit. You know, what I was thinking of just now too when you mentioned that the reincarnation thing is going to become pretty confusing because we see a lot of the characters brought back in different roles and so it's almost like each person is being reincarnated as a different person so it seems like each actor is supposed to be their own reincarnation as the timelines go on but the main character in each storyline that has the birthmark is supposed to be that that reincarnation and obviously different actors play the main character in each section in each storyline of the six storylines so it's that that makes it confusing. I mean, you know, the things that they play around with the the Wachowskis and Tickver is that not only are they doing gender bends, but they're doing like race bends as well. Yeah, important, uh, interesting to note. I think how much, yeah, how much, how much gender and race bending goes on. I guess you have people. You, you don't have any blackface going on, which is good, <laughs> but you have plenty of like yellow face and <laughs> you know. People playing, everyone plays a white person at some point, I want to say, if they're not already white. There are some uh, points that I'm definitely going to mention that uh, I have some thoughts about, so that'll be right. fun to get into. Oh, another thing that I found out is that Tickber actually took, like, directed certain timelines, and the Wachowskis directed, he directed three of them, and then the Wachowskis directed the other three. Oh, interesting, okay. I can't remember which three, I'd have to look it up, but yeah, that kind of puts a different view on things too you know it's not like they all did it together but they were i mean they were all very uh aware of what they were trying to accomplish sure so. yeah like they discussed it ahead of time but anyway go back to cloud atlas <laughs> yes they fight over the the cloud atlas sextet because i think shortly after frobisher names it and airs is like oh, okay yeah that's a good name for it and then he uh frobisher is trying to claim ownership of it even though they've kind of been working on it together, but it's mainly been Frobisher. And Ayers is like, no, this is mine. You know, if anything, I was going to give you some credit for it, but no, fuck that. This is entirely mine now. 
And so they fight over it. Jeez. And that pistol yeah. that he stole out of that nightstand comes into play now. Well, this is, you know, after he like blackmails him and stuff and threatens Vivian walks in at some point, he's like packing his shit up and he's like, I'm leaving anyway. I don't care what you what you're going to say. And then he grabs the piece off the bed and it's like, well, I'm keeping this then kind of thing. And that's when the gun comes out. He pops one into his belly and he survives, by the way, if you didn't catch that. Oh, did he? Yeah. Later you find out like that he's recovering and like, he, you know, that he, you know, names Frobisher as his, you know, he's like on, on a newspaper and stuff. And it's like, you know, composer recovering from blah, 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 blah. And not to mention, so during this time, like during his stay and like uh, him working on the sextet, um, he is continuously writing to Six Smith. So they are staying in touch. While he's having a secret affair with Jocasta and all that stuff. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> you know, something tells me he he forgot to uh, mention that in the letters. Right. Obviously, shooting airs in the stomach is going to have some terrible ramifications for Frobisher. So he flees. He gets the hell out of there. And uh, But I think he understands that, you know, his time is limited, whether someone's going to come kill him or if he's going to get locked up and he's not going to be able to finish it. So he just becomes obsessed with finishing the sextet at all costs. Like this is his passion and this is his life's work and he needs to make sure he gets yeah. this done, which he actually accomplishes. Yes, he does. But it takes a long time. I, I get the sense that it, it took like a good couple months for him to finish this thing. Yeah. And then he tells Six Smith everything that's going on and Six Smith's like, oh, I need to go save him kind of thing. And he also mentions that he goes to this tower every single morning and watches the sunrise or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he goes there and Frobisher happens to see him first. And he's like, I'm, I think it was meant to be that I saw you first because, you know, obviously if Six Smith saw him first, he would have intercepted. But Frobisher saw him first, so he was able to kind of just hide and enjoy the view for one last time and then go do his thing. Do you think that Frobisher intended to not really, like, speak to Six Smith and just kind of, like, hide from him? Or do you think that he just decided that on the spot when he saw him, he was just like, you know what, like, I don't want to. I don't want to be tempted to not go through with it, kind of thing. I think either way he was going to go through with it, and you know, Six Smith was obviously going to try to stop him. But I wonder if he mm-hmm. thought that he didn't want to like rope Six Smith into this mess. Like he was like, I'm going to save him, and I'm going to mm-hmm. just like keep him at bay, keep him as like this like uh, oh, this yeah like this neutral party that has no involvement to protect him. Mm-hmm. Could be. I haven't thought too too deep about that part, but. Yeah, definitely could be. So Frobisher goes after seeing Sixsmith and and hiding from him. He goes back to the apartment. Seems like that's where he finishes the letter. I think he writes it like mm-hmm. right after that. And then, but it's like you know we're seeing it as it's happening. And then he takes the the pistol that he stole from Ayers and commits suicide in the bathtub. So sad. And this is sad too because Sixsmith finds out Six where his apartment on is on the stairs. Yeah. He was literally like minutes away from stopping yeah. him and he just couldn't get there in time. Yeah. And he was very distraught, obviously. Mm-hmm. So sad. And I'm sure he carried that with him like his whole life and stuff, which ends in the next section. It was pretty cool. Like I actually really enjoyed that story. This 1936 time frame. Yeah, I like this story. The next section. San Francisco, 1973. Which the interesting thing is that um this section was written as like a murder mystery kind of thing. And then the next section, which was, was comedic in the movie was actually written comedically in the book also. So like they had different styles in the book as well as in the movie. Yeah. It's you like know? each time frame is a different uh, genre. And that, that's yeah, actually pretty cool yeah. because this one, San Francisco, this one felt like 
like noir type of crime thriller. <laughs> to me, it kind of felt like, yeah, like a, it felt like a, like a seventies. I, I don't know. It just had that seventies feel to it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like all the, the bell bottoms and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we have um, this journalist, Louisa Ray. And, you know, like I mentioned, every every section, they always find out about the past somehow. So the mm-hmm. way she ends up finding about the past section is through Frobisher's letters that she finds on Six Smith. Later on. Yeah. So that's that's how that, that happens. Um, and then you have Six Smith, played by James Darcy still, but he's older. So he has, like, all the old makeup on. And let me... I think they've definitely improved... <laughs> Not the best. Like prosthetics nowadays. Yeah. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't that great. You know, I like the fact that it's still practical effects because if it's nowadays, yeah, they would have just like done a deep fake. CGI. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, also, I think this is cool because I think this is the only time the same exact character actively carries over into a different era. Yeah. Yeah. So Six Smith actually transcended into this story from the last story and the funny thing is that if you know if we're following the whole reincarnation thing you know he knew frobisher and then frobisher would have been the one that's reincarnated into louisa and so he met the same person and reunited with the same person for one reason or the other twice do we know already that she has the birthmark like do we see it that early on i don't I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly when. I mean, you know, this movie jumps around so much, but. So this one, yeah, uh, Louisa Ray, played by Halle Berry. She's back. And then, you know, Rufus Sixsmith, again, played by James Darcy. They actually meet in an elevator. So it's it's going down and then the elevator loses power. And so they're just kind of sitting there for a while. It seems like they're there for like maybe over an hour. At least a couple hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think if they weren't if they weren't trapped together, they wouldn't have gotten to talk in. But, you know, he finds out that she's a journalist and she finds out that he has some information that might be interesting to a journalist, you know? Does Sixsmith work at the nuclear reactor or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought, too. So, yeah, he uh, works at the nuclear reactor that's ran by Lloyd Hooks, played by Hugh Grant. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if you're going to tell a journalist like, hey, there's some uh, crazy shit going on at this place. The journalist is going to go check it out. I mean, that's just in, yeah. that's their nature, you know. So, yeah, she's just like, all right, well, you know, I'll take your word for it. And so she uh, she goes and pays the nuclear reactor visit. And that's where she actually runs into Lloyd Hooks. Hooks initially, to me, kind of comes off nice. I feel like there seems to be even through that niceness, there's like some sort of like something devious about him, I guess you could say. Yeah, I agree. He's hiding something. You can just tell. And uh, this is where she also meets um a scientist there right the charming scientist isaac Sachs, played by tom hanks she gets caught snooping by isaac Sachs, played by tom hanks but whose office was she snooping i, I forgot the name on. i don't know whose office i i actually didn't catch that was it his it wasn't his right it could have been his i don't know I, i'd have to go back and look do you think it was six smith's office you know that's a good question was, it, was he dead by then no that, that that's coming up so she figures that um, he's going to gather the reports or whatever, and uh, he's going to provide it to her. But I think while she's there kind of scoping it out herself, that's when she meets Isaac Sachs. And uh, he actually seems like a, a really nice guy. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Tom Hanks, he just he's good at playing anybody <laughs> more often than not. I feel like he's just has a natural ability at playing protagonists. Mm, yeah, that's true. Also, the two seem to hit it off pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that that would have been a, 
like they would have ended up going on a date or something like that but and then he mentioned that he was like falling in love with her and stuff when he was on the plane Mm. Uh, but then you know that got blown up (laughs) yeah even though they had only met like that one time it seemed like they they had some chemistry and yeah that's where he you know he warms up to her and then he hints that think he also backs up six myths conspiracy that like yeah there's like something something crazy going on here definitely i think that's when she fully locks in like all right yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna figure out what this is i'm gonna dig this up unfortunately for six smith before he can hand over the proof of the conspiracy the little report that he had he is assassinated by hook's hitman bill smoke played by hugo weaving and this guy's fucking creepy he sure is Hugo Weaving just, you know, the way Tom Hanks does protagonist well, Hugo Weaving does creepy well. He does, like, antagonist really well. <laughs> yeah, he does antagonist really well. Um, you know who Bill Smoke reminds me of? Have you seen the Grand Budapest Hotel? Yes, I have. So do you remember that, like, creepy, uh, who is it, Willem Dafoe? I was going to say, Willem Dafoe also does antagonist. <laughs> he does Dafoe very well. Yeah. So after Sixsmith is assassinated, Louisa finds out that uh, Frobisher actually had some letters that were sent to Sixsmith. Sixsmith had had Frobisher's letters. Yeah, she reads those letters, and uh, that's. And I think the that's link, the right? only the only yeah the only purpose of that really of her taking the letters is that that's how she finds out about the previous section. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of these, I don't know if they necessarily have like a, a major impact. I think it's just cool to see what the link is, like what carries over. Yeah, yeah. And I guess what's what's also kind of weird about the letters is she, you know, she finds out about the, the Cloud Atlas sextet. And then so she goes to the record store and she actually finds it. What that shows is that it actually did get published. So Sixsmith actually took the work and got it published yeah. and then gave frobisher credit for so i thought that was pretty cool that that kind of tied up loose ends for that and the fact that the fact that she had never heard it before but she recognized it Mm. because she is reincarnated frobisher duh crazy but the you know what what's also sad about this is that she still doesn't have the report so how's she gonna get the report well sex is gonna provide a copy of six minutes report to louisa now or he's gonna attempt to because isn't she leaving that place when she gets run off the bridge so she meets so she so Sixsmith actually does get killed before she goes and meets up with cuz she sees him and then she leaves and then she goes she goes to um yeah so she she meets Sixsmith and she doesn't get the report and he gets killed and whatnot she gets the letters and that's it but she's like I need to get this report and so she goes hoping she goes to the 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 plant hoping that she could find it yeah Sax is the one that that provides the the report to Louisa so he's, I think he's like leaving. So she's driving off with it. Yeah, he has to go. He has to go to to Seoul, which is funny. So he has to go to Seoul for whatever reason. And so he's on he's on a red eye or whatever. And then um, as she's driving home, he's on the plane, and you know the plane gets blown up at the same time as Smoke starts pursuing her and then runs her off the bridge. This was pretty crazy on Smoke's part because she's like leaving the plant with the report. And then uh, Sax is on a plane and he's he's leaving. Essentially, they're being assassinated around the same time. The funny thing is you actually see Smoke leaving the plane. It's not like he's like asking them to like, oh, open back the door. Like, I need to get off kind of thing. Hmm. And I'm thinking like if it was nowadays, like what if they're like, no, I can't open the door. Like you're stuck on this plane now. Then he would have been stuck on it too. What would he have done? A. So, you know, it was a different time in 1973. Just be like, open the door. I'm getting off after all kind of thing. And they're just like, yeah, sure, whatever. So he gets off the plane. And then he goes and runs Luisa off a bridge, like, right after that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like that airport is that far away. I guess not. 
man, that scene with the uh, the car going off the freeway, or I guess it's like a highway. Yeah, it's a bridge. Yeah. That was pretty cool because, you know, it's kind of left at, at a cliffhanger. So this is in the, the non-linear style of the movie. Uh, it cuts away and you're just like, oh, shit, yeah. did she die? Like, is she going to get out of yeah. it? Yeah. Which is nice. So that suspense is there. Oh, yeah, definitely. It does a definitely a good job of that. Um, Luckily, she is able to survive. Yeah, she she ends up like walking home. She runs into Lloyd Hooks's head of security, Joe Napier, back at her place. He was in the military with uh, her dad, who was also a journalist. And let's also give him credit. That's played by Keith David, the legendary Keith David. Who is awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he And so he ends up helping her a lot. Like they they kind of conspire together to get smoke. I don't know if their intention is is to actually kill him or just to injure him bad mm. enough where he couldn't chase him anymore or what. But they end up in a you know end up in a chase together. Yeah, they kind of set a trap, but he he gets yeah. away and yeah, and smoke ends up chasing them. You know, carjacks somebody and kills them to carjack them. <laughs> just to like and run starts right chasing into him. him around. <laughs> yeah, and then you know that's when they run into the building where a factory run by Mexican immigrants or whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I think this part of the the movie, it was kind of a blur for me because I thought it was a little boring. So I don't, I don't think we need to go like beat by beat. It's a, it's supposed to be like this suspenseful ass chase, but you're like, eh, they set the trap. And then like, he just goes like right down the street. And then like, they didn't see him go down the street to steal that car to like drive right back up the street. Right. I was like, okay. I think he was just, yeah, trying to find another vehicle, but they end up um, do, in this chase through this building where this factory, like I said, run by Mexican immigrants. And um, he ends up like the girl at the front or whatever. He kills her dog. And so she comes back. They go through this chase through this whole building or whatever. And then she ends up pop- popping up at the end and like beats him to death with a pipe or something like that. And <laughs> she ends up finally meeting up with the niece. And gets a copy of the the report. Yeah. Needless to say, like, she finally gets the the copy after Smoke is killed. The niece basically asks her to expose those motherfuckers or whatever. (laughs) For what they did to Sixsmith. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, everyone kind of had their their own stake in this, you know. So it's like the niece, obviously, for her family. And then, you know, uh, Louisa, she's, she's just a journalist. And this is what she needs to do. Yeah. And she's very dedicated. Does that take us to the next section? Almost. I just wanted to really quick touch on what the conspiracy was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it turns out that um, that Hooks dude was working for Big Oil. And they had planned the, the for the nuclear plant to explode and kill as many people as possible. They wanted to sabotage the nuclear power plant because they wanted the oil business to still remain as like the main fuel source. All right, now London 2012. So this section is short and sweet and pretty funny. There's a bunch of old people. I think this is also kind of like the least impactful of all of them. Fun story. You know, Jim Broadman, he he's he's done a lot of roles. You've probably seen him in the likes of, you know, Harry Potter. He plays uh, Slughorn and he's the, the ringmaster in Moulin Rouge. Those are the, the two that I, I really know him from. And it's funny because he has this way of, delivering lines sometimes like he does the the eulogy for uh what's his name aragog the the spider the giant spider Mm. and then he always like he goes up at the end of his lines like he's like you know here lies aragog and like goes up at the end of his lines and stuff (laughs) 
he does that in Moulin Rouge too. Like that's like a Jim Broadbent thing, I guess. Oh, I don't know. Okay. And so I totally recognized it. But anyway, he's he's hilarious and he's old and he plays that well in this section. <laughs> I'm not sure if he does he. I'm sure he does, but like, does he have the birthmark? I don't know if they've ever revealed that. Yeah, that's a. I kind of want to watch it again and like really pay attention to like where everyone's birthmark is. That's interesting. I don't. I don't remember seeing one. This one's interesting because you think that at first it's going to be about the the brand new author uh, and yeah. former gangster Dermot Hoggins, played by Tom Hanks again. Um, but it's actually about Timothy Cavendish, played by Jen Broadbent. He's his editor. So Derm- Dermot Hoggins writes a memoir about his gangster ass life or whatever <laughs> in London and then gets a bad review. And that reviewer is at his launch party, which is, which was a bad idea. And so he literally murders him for the bad review right then and there. He's so pissed and he's drunk too. So he just fucking just tosses his ass over the ledge. It was not expecting and you totally that. see the, you see the splat. Yeah. They show the splat. That was a, uh, yeah, that was unexpected, but um, yeah, I can appreciate that. They put the work into it. <laughs> right. It's funny because that's the only time you see that character is like when he throws him over. Yeah, that kind of helps propel the success of his book. But since he's in jail for murder, Cavendish takes all the money. Mm-hmm. He's just like, why not? <laughs> What's he going to yeah. do with it in jail? And then spends it all, by the way, because <laughs> he only has like 2000 pounds left when his brothers come asking for the, you know, the um, the money. And they ask for 50, oh, like 50K and he only has 2000 when he calls the bank. So those are his brothers. I thought they were just like goons. I don't think it, I'm not sure if it mentions that that it's his brothers, but in the book, it's his brothers. And then like, if you read a synopsis of the actual movie, it, they call him his, they call them his brothers too. Mm. Interesting. So okay. I think it's supposed to be his brothers regardless. So yeah, he, um, his brothers come or maybe it just means brothers as in gangsters. That's what I thought because they didn't look like they were related to Hawkins at all. They just look like some generic goons. His his, bro- his goon brothers. Yeah, whatever gang he's in. But um, yeah, they threaten Kevin Dish's life, and so he has to come up with the money somehow. And so who does he right. hit up? He hits up his well-off brother, Denholm. What kind of name is Denholm? <laughs> and Denholm is played by Hugh Grant. In old makeup, in terrible old makeup, as usual. I actually can't tell if uh, Denholm is supposed to be his older brother or younger brother. Right. Because they're both old. Probably. I would say younger, but... um. You know, at first he's just like, you know, piss off or whatever. Like, I'm not going to help you. Mm-hmm. And then he, I don't know if he comes up with it right then and there, but he decides to get a little revenge on Cavendish for having an affair with his wife. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll help you. I'll help you. But you need to go, you need to go hide in the meantime. So hole up at this hotel, you know, I, I'll set it up for you. Just, you know, I'll, I'll just go there and hide and um i'll contact you soon kind of thing yeah it, called the aurora house right yeah so he goes well he, he takes the train he you know he's like trying to head up there as fast as possible and he actually reads the uh the manuscript based on Louisa's story from the previous yeah. era. so that's pretty cool her story is being turned into mystery novels yeah so so he gets there and then he thinks he's just uh checking into the hotel but it turns out he's literally signing his life away dude this was this is like messed up but at the same time, Cavendish, I didn't really feel sorry for him. Like, he was kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> right. 
And he, it's so funny, like the the way he reacts when he finds out he's stuck there. Because he straight up signs himself <laughs> into a this like nursing home where all outside contact is prohibited. So he's basically yeah. like he's locking himself up in this prison. Yeah, he's he locked and they lock the doors at night and stuff. You know, he he tries to get out a couple times, which is hilarious and does not work at all. And there's this you know crazy giant nurse named Nurse Noakes who's played by Hugo Weaving. Yeah, Hugo Weaving. Let me just say, dude, Hugo Weaving makes a terrifying nurse. (laughs) Dude, she is like fucking scary. (laughs) So bad. Very, very, uh, um, what's that damn movie called? Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, you think so? Like, didn't make the best woman kind of thing, you know? Hugo Weaving as this nurse. This character reminded me of the nun, the shame shame from uh game oh. of thrones <laughs> that's funny <laughs> fucking hugo weaving though awesome uh, antagonist yeah and so eventually cavendish meets up with a few of his other uh aurora housemates i guess mm-hmm. and they come up with this great escape plan which includes calling one of the residents son convincing them him that his mother is dying so they show up with a car and then they steal the car, these poor old people. This isn't going smoothly, by the way. <laughs> no. And then they they escape, barely. They couldn't even figure out how to turn the car on. Yeah, because it was a push start and they're all old. <laughs> <laughs> so they find the key and they're like, this isn't the key, how do we do this? Yeah. She's like, well, that button says start, just push that. <laughs> What's that button do? <laughs> and then they finally drive off and then they stop at a pub to celebrate their escape or whatever but it's not even that far away Yeah, it's like it's still in town get caught and they're able to convince the the all the bar drunk fanatics there at the local bar yeah to to rally with them yeah and then they're able to escape the ending of this was kind of rushed though because you know early on um he stops by his old crushes or his old uh previous love's house and he's like oh she still lives there but then he ends up leaving to the aurora house after that so he actually rekindles his relationship with the old flame that was mentioned earlier yeah and then he's writing his experience into a, a film script yeah it's like a screenplay about like all that craziness that happened like the whole business that his brother basically forced him into you know what's weird about this, though? Hmm. Those people are still going to be looking for their money. That wasn't resolved. Yeah, that's true. He just escaped. I guess, I don't know, I guess he disappeared to his old girlfriend's house, and it's not like they're going to know that he rekindled that flame after all those years and whatnot, so. I mean, gangsters find a way. That's where they show his birthmark, is in the flashback where he's in bed with the old flame. Oh, okay. So he does have the birthmark. It's on his ass cheek, too? I think so. <laughs> like Frobisher? Yeah, I think so. Well, I, where was it? On, it wasn't on his... Because it was on Louisa's shoulder. I thought it was on Frobisher's ass cheek because he's like in bed with six You might be right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they showed it on uh, on Cavendish when he was young. You wouldn't want to see that birthmark on Cavendish as his old self? No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to see uh, old Cavendish's birthmark. So now we move on to Neo Soul twenty one forty four. So we finally go into the future on this one. Yeah. So this is where it gets a little sci fi, right? I like it. I I love cyberpunk type stuff. Yeah. 
so this is Neo Soul, which obviously is, and they actually explain a little bit later on that the original Soul was kind of flooded due to uh, I'm, I'm assuming rising tides from like global, you know, global warming, warming or something, or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. And so they kind of built on top of all that, and that became Neo Soul. The main protagonist uh, we follow, Sonmi Four Five One, played by Duna Bay or by. She has a number because yeah, she is a fabricant. Um, I almost said replicant, which would be incorrect <laughs> because that is another movie. Yep, Blade Runner, y'all. <laughs> a fabricant is a uh, like a humanoid clone of a of a person. So. Yeah, I guess they are indentured as a server for um, like this exclusive club looking thing. Yeah, we're basically back to slaves. And I think it's just a food chain. It's just like a fast food chain kind of thing. Is it really? A restaurant chain. Yeah, it's called Papa Song. Yeah, it's just it's just a restaurant chain. And so they just have these they just buy these uh, cheap clones for wait staff for their for their restaurant chain i wonder if it was mainly like a like a brothel but like you could also go there just to eat um i think it's implied that the yeah that they're they're also that some of them might also be sex workers like not all of them because you know sonmi 451 was pretty surprised to find out about it all yeah i think they keep them all pretty uneducated right like they're they're just they don't really communicate and they just stay in their little individual pods yeah and and... actually in the book the you know their sustenance the soap Mm -hmm. they actually use that like they put something in the soap to keep them kind of dumb okay like to keep them kind of ignorant i think that's kind of implied here too because they that's like the only thing that they eat is like the soap drink and then they just sleep and then that's it once a day yeah Mm -hmm. which is weird I actually wondered, though, because you only ever see, I mean, they only ever show, you know, one of her fellow fabricants, like, having sex with their kind of keeper. Yeah, like, owner or whatever. Yeah, their yeah. boss. I don't know if he is just there to, like, keep keep them in line or something. Well, I mean, but... you know, he has the keys to the place, so he can just pop in if he wants, a, wants to have a quickie. Yeah, that's true. Some of them start becoming a little self-aware, and she has a friend that kind of enlightens her to the idea of rebellion and shows her the clip from Cavendish's movie. A full-length movie that is made based off of Cavendish's, I guess, the screenplay. This is like a reenactment almost, like a dramatization of his life. And then he says that whole, "I, I will not be subject to criminal abuse or whatever. My question is, though... How did she, the friend, start becoming self-aware? Do you think? Did they maybe explain she that? had another friend that showed her? No, they didn't. They didn't explain that. It has to start somewhere, right? So who was the first one to like open their eyes, if you will? Yeah, we never find that out. Could have been. Could have been another another replicate. Replicant. See, I said replicant. Another fabricant that you know became self-aware, but then ended up getting retired before they actually went anywhere. Which is after twelve years, I believe. They end up going to a place called Exaltation, which is supposed to be in the book. It's actually a, like a vacation resort in Honolulu. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. You know what that's like? That is like the island. Do you remember the island? The movie? Oh, yeah. 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 I think that's like a similar concept where they're like, when it's time to like leave their, their home, yeah, then it's like, yeah. oh, we're going to this paradise. Yeah. I, I remember that. And I actually saw like some of that kind of recently, like a couple months ago kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of like that ish where, yeah, at the, after 12 years, they're, they're quote unquote retired into this place called exaltation. They think that they're going to someplace nice to, to live out the rest of their lives after they've done their time of 12 years. But 
her friend, uh, the friend that that you know opened her eyes, ends up standing up for herself in the middle of a work shift and gets immediately retired. <laughs> You can see like gradually, like she's like learning more and more from her friend because she's just like, okay, so you, you wake up when you're not supposed to. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, you're, you're watching videos. We're not supposed to be watching movies. That's crazy. Yeah. Because, you know, she's naive and it's purposely kept that way. So she's like, her eyes are starting to gradually open up. Mm-hmm. And at one point she wakes up from her pod. Obviously her friend was already killed off. Like she was retired. So she's like, she's like, huh? And she wakes up and she meets a very non-asian looking commander hey jude chang none of the non-asian people that are <laughs> in this section look asian he's played by jim sturgis who is a uh, straight up white guy and then they have a what was it uh what's his name that plays the napier keith david keith david yeah yeah and he's he they make him asian too so i i heard that there was a lot of controversy surrounding the the non-asian cast members being given prosthetic eyelids to make them look asian oh my god i mean you know like how we're saying before this whole movie toys with the gender bending and race bending so yeah i don't think this was done with any racist intent obviously they did. They were very careful not to do any blackface in this movie, though. I just have to mention that, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, obviously a huge no-no, like no matter what, except for in uh, Tropic Thunder, apparently. So I know that, um, like, they look weird, but how did you feel about the non-Asian characters playing Asian people? I didn't think it was as weird as Dunabai playing, you know, a freckled, redheaded white chick in the first section. Mm-hmm. See, I actually didn't think that was weird. It's inter- The interesting thing to me was that I thought that she looked pretty good if she wasn't moving her face. And I also didn't even think that Halle Berry uh, being white was all that weird. I think it just made her look like an exotic, like, white person. It was, it was, it was interesting. I think it was just the, the makeup or the prosthetics or something were just a little off. Yeah. For, every, for everybody, not just, you know, just like any time they, they did it. So yeah, uh, Commander Haiju Chang, um, he is this dashing young fighter that is tasked with protecting Sanmi at all costs. Because for whatever reason, they see something in her. But we will find that out I still out don't later. really understand like how they chose her. Or maybe they saw that she was slowly starting to kind of open her eyes to how... Like she was starting to become more open to alternative ideas. Hmm. And then decided to use her for their rebellion or whatever but like otherwise i'm not really 100 percent sure exactly how they chose her specifically you can't really tell how people are going to take this news you know it's it's like the matrix when they're being woken up and it's like some of them will remain good some of them term evil you know and yeah. you, you just can't really tell so i think i wonder if they had tried with a couple of them and so um you know they tried with the friend and maybe that's maybe. why she was able to mm-hmm. start waking up and you know they start educating her but maybe she was too much of a hothead. And so they wanted someone that was like intelligent and that would actually listen to them and follow their instructions. Mm-hmm. Oh, this character, I just really quick, this dashing young fighter that's tasked to protect like this, like kind of naive female character. This actually reminds me of Mila Kunis and Channing Tatum's characters from <laughs> Jupiter Ascending. That's funny. I guess I can see that. Yeah. It's almost like they took this concept and they're like, let's just expand on this for our next movie. So yeah, so then they they kind of slowly start showing her, you know, what the world has to offer, more more information and What'd you think of the apartment? 
does everybody just live in a cement box with like screens on the walls? Like, I don't know. Haven't you seen uh, cyberpunk renditions and ideas? Like they're all pretty depressing. Like you live in this, this busy bustling city, but your living quarters are pretty like fifth element. Your, your living quarters are pretty sad and it's overcrowded. Like you live in these cities and you're in these towers that are like hundreds of floors up and everyone is in these tiny rooms. That's like the future that everyone always kind of predicts to happen. Pretty standard, I guess, just living in a cement box and having a, a really good hollow walls. Yeah, I mean, with those walls, it looks way easier to live in. I guess, yeah. I mean, if, if I wonder if it would look that real like in real life, you know what I mean? Because mm. I imagine it probably was good technology and it looked really real, you know? Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, TVs, I think, are, are going to continue to get more advanced and monitors and stuff. And they can probably look like super crisp, even like really up close. Yeah, that's true. But then, the, you know, they obviously, like, you know, they, they fed her all, all kinds of information, let her find out about the world and see the entire Cavendish movie. So eventually, Chang introduces Sonri to the leader of the rebel movement, Ancor Apis, I guess that's how you say it. And that's Keith David's character. Yeah. Tells, you know, Heiju to take her to the soap factory, show her exultation, which is also the soap factory right that really they're just uh getting killed strung up like cattle and recycled into the soap and she's like they feed us to ourselves that was crazy when she finds out about this sanmi is horrified she's just like what the fuck and i don't understand how just wearing you know red jumpsuits with hoods made them blend in but whatever wearing like handmaid's tail outfits (laughs) i know Sonmi and Cheng are actually discovered and have to make a, a run for it. And this was, man, this was pretty exhilarating. I feel like, you know, the funny thing is that because, you know, like, you know, in the 70s, they went through that chase and that's supposed to be like suspenseful and exhilarating. And you're like, oh, it's kind of boring. This is the part where it gets a little bit boring for me because then they're just running and there's guns and they're running and there's guns and she gets captured and then they escape again and there's more guns. And the part with the whole uh, when they go into the dam thing was cool and he like you know, blows up the blows up the dam tunnel so the water's all rushing in and they have to get into their little hole before the water rushes on them. That was kind of fun. It's like a highway that goes underground or under the water. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty cool. What was kind of like dramatic about this part, Chang looks like he dies. Like he still falls from that little yeah. bridge thing and like you're like, oh well sucks for him. He's gone. <laughs> and she thinks she's yeah, she thinks he he's dead. But then she's getting transported and one of the guards ends up being him and he, you know, fights off the rest of the guards and they escape. Chang's just fucking, he's doing what he can and he keeps fighting them off and this did feel a lot like a Matrix movie though. This is like the Wachowski's bread and butter right here. So I would right. not be surprised if they took care of this Neo Soul section. They called it Neo Soul. Mm, that'd be funny if they actually mentioned Neo in some way. I know how. Once they break out again, they're, they're, ha- they're, staging their last stand oh you actually said that in your notes last stand <laughs> you don't actually read my notes i do i do but i didn't i don't memorize them okay um and and then sanmi is making her yeah her public broadcast which becomes i don't know like a i don't know if it's like a manifesto or something but sort of yeah but you know it ends up becoming the the sacred text in the next section uh and then she, yeah, she gets re- recaptured and everybody else gets killed defending the place. And then she gets recaptured and an archivist 
records her story before she is. I guess she recounts the whole thing to him, right? Yeah. And so that's pretty cool because, like, the archivist, his job is to basically just, like, remember everything. Archive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, like, literally just, like, recording everything for, for history's uh, sake. Yeah. Her whole story is going to live on as, like, a stored document or whatever, or, like, stored file. But needless to say, Sanmi is executed. And But before she leaves, she did mention that um, it's kind of like, was it worth it? And she said, well, if she can at least reach one person with her story, then it was worth it. And uh, he was like, how do you know if uh, it'll reach anyone? And she said, I already did. So yeah. she, was, she was referring to the archivist because it seemed like he was like really engulfed in her story. I was just assuming that she meant anybody. There'd be somebody who was going to hear her story and be moved by it or convinced by it or whatever. Well, I guess we can move on to the next and last section, which is the big Island of Hawaii. And I think this is actually my favorite section. This takes place in quotes, 106 winters after the fall, but I guess that's technically around 2321. Yeah. But obviously, you know, in the, in this time, they don't really have any way to measure exact years. So they just like, oh, this is roughly 106 winters after the fall. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the prescience like keep time a little bit better. Maybe, yeah. They actually have the, the technology. Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, they went, obviously they went into a very futuristic, very technological future. And then I don't know if you've ever heard that quote where it's like, oh, you know, World War II was fought with guns and stuff, but World War Three will be fought with. Oh, I don't know what World War Three will be fought with, but World War Four will be fought with sticks or something like that. Oh, which damn. is basically saying like once World War Three happens, like we're done. <laughs> yeah, we're done. And so um, this is uh, this is kind of what that reminded me of because um, obviously, like they went right past all the futuristic stuff and went right back into a primitive lifestyle, and some more primitive than others. <laughs> we did reach that futuristic moment, but it's like at some point you all the advanced technology just came to a head and it, it all just destroyed itself. Yeah, exactly. And so you have this fairly primitive tribe and an even more primitive tribe, cannibalistic, primitive Kona tribe on top of that. It's unfortunate because this is kind of like like a Mad Max type of setting where yeah. um, anyone that is militaristic and has access to weapons and stuff and they basically just have less compassion for people, you know, the strongest survive. And they're usually the ones that kind of end up thriving. Yeah. Yeah. So you have these two tribes uh, on the big Island of Hawaii. And the thing that was the most interesting to me is that the language even went past, you know, I mean, I guess English has been kind of deteriorating for a long time now, but you know, there's slang and more slang and eventually deteriorates into the language that you hear in the movie. Say no more, fam. <laughs> oh, God, shut up. <laughs> um, and then even the names, like Zachary is, you know, obviously a name we know, but it's just like missing vowels. A lot of the a lot of languages are just missing vowels here and there. Uh-huh. Adding apostrophes here and there. Yeah, I actually kind of liked it. it. It was like a weird, like, I mean, it's, it's like a, a newer language that they made up for the movie or whatever, but... It's like a a hybrid of like a lot of different dialects, it seems like. Yeah, like pigeon and stuff. But it's interesting to me because it sounds like a whole new, it sounds like a whole different language. And yet we can understand it all, you know? Mm -hmm. Like you you get the gist of what they're saying. After a few first couple times, yeah. Watching it this past time that I watched it for this, you know, I had the captions on and stuff and it made it a little bit easier. But I could understand everything they were saying and get where it came from too, if that makes sense. 
and so I liked I liked that about it. Another interesting thing to me is you know you have the prescience, which I guess is what's left over from like this the super futuristic you know civilization, right? And they're dying off because there's they they they're affected by some plague, which is one of the reasons why Halle Berry's character Marinim is there. So let's get into uh, some of the characters a bit then. So like the main character for this one is Zachary, played by Tom Hanks. Right. And, uh, you know, he, he lives a simple life as a goat herder. And he actually, we, we see that he's haunted by the uh, the guilt of letting his brother-in-law die in front of him. And his nephew. This is crazy, too, because we're also introduced to old Georgie, played by Hugo Weaving, which is some fucking imaginary devil on his shoulder alter ego character yeah but i think he's actually supposed to be the devil because i think they they mentioned old georgie some other time too in reference to the devil and so he's Mm -hmm. yeah like the devil on his shoulder but like literally the devil but it seems like zachary's the only one that really like talks about him or like can see him right oh yeah i think yeah i think he kind of imagines him out of that guilt it's like his you know the his bad manifestation of it yeah the embodiment of zachary's negative thoughts yeah exactly it's it's interesting because he kind of reminds me of, I don't know, like a Creole kind of New Orleansy sort of, huh? Some sort of like Cajun flair to him. <laughs> yeah, like with the with the hat and the the clothes. I don't know something about that. I could see that. This isn't the first time that the presidents have come down. Like the, the yeah. ship comes down, they're like, "Oh, look, they're back," type of thing. Yeah, it's time to trade. Mm-hmm. They they kind of get excited time. to see him, and I think yeah. that the tribes people they're always intrigued by the prescience like they they always want to learn more about them yeah and the marinum seems to be the only one that comes on land like the ship stays out in the ocean or whatever marinum comes on land and obviously she's tasked to like learn about them or whatever but she's not allowed to interfere with them which is made evident everyone else is excited to see prescience but zachary doesn't seem to like marinum very much initially he doesn't trust her you know i i feel like he thinks of her as like a spy or some sort of threat to his people Mm-hmm. yeah so d- when when he when does he go see the abbess so that's when marinum is had been staying there for a bit right yeah was it before or after his niece though i, I, th- I want to say before However, that happens, but she ends up uh, giving him like a real prophecy kind of thing. Yeah, like she she says the words right, like yeah, like she kind of goes into a trance, like throws her head back, her eyes change like three or four different colors, says the few lines that she says, you know, something about yeah, you know, something that that tells him to you know hide below or whatever when the the Kona tribes come, so they hide under the bridge. Dude, also a shout out to the uh, the Kona chief. Played by um, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. I could not tell that was him for like the longest time. Right. And this is the furthest he has ever played from like the rest of his characters. You know, like you would yeah. never picture Hugh Grant being in a role like this because you're like this this like savage like badass looking tribesman. He was fucking terrifying. Yeah, he really was. This was like some apocalypto shit going on. Seriously, and I didn't even realize it was him until I was looking into it today. Yeah. I was holy crap. With Marinim, her getting to like be on the island, like learn about the people and study up on them, that was more of like a front because, you know, she has like this this like mission that she's trying to accomplish. And so she actually reveals that to Zachary. The reason why I'm I'm like really here with you guys is because I need someone to take me up to the top of this mountain so she mm-hmm. can uh, send off this SOS to some off world humans, I guess. Colonies. Because yeah. um yeah, her people are dying from this plague. 
Yeah. And uh, Zachary's like, nah, sounds like a personal problem until the niece gets stung or bit, whatever happens to her. Yeah, some sort of like poisonous fish or something like that. And she she gets stung by that. And um, her, you know, she's she's going to die within a day, basically. Zachary's like, you know, please, I know you can heal her. I know you can save her. Like, she's going to die for sure if you don't. Uh, if you save her life, I'll take you up the mountain. And so she does it. She does it sneakily. And uh, I think this is where Zachary and Marinim actually start to almost become friends. You know, they start trusting each other. And because yeah. this is a long trek up the mountain, this isn't just some like 10 minute hike. Like, it seems like they have to hike for a few days. Yeah. And especially after, you know, they're climbing the rock and she's like, you know, we need the rope so I can catch you if you fall or whatever. And then he ends up having to catch her and old Georgie's trying to tell him to drop the rope. And then he remembers the prophecy, part of the prophecy that told him when your hands are bleeding, don't drop that rope. Old Georgie is freaking, it's so awesome how they do it because they're on the side of the cliff and like Georgie's like walking up like horizontally, you know, like up to right. him. <laughs> and he just comes in, he great. pops in from like different angles. You never know where he's, yeah. he's going to show up. And they eventually make it up to that communication tower or station at the top. And Zachary, you know, he, he starts to notice more uh, Sanmi imagery up there. Yeah. And then he, he learns a little bit more about her history. He actually gets to see her recording a little bit and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, that's Sanmi, you know. Which was the, the recording from Neo Soul. Here's the sacred text coming out of her actual mouth, you know. Um, and then, of course, old Georgie's there like, she's lying. She's just trying to manipulate you. Marinum tells him the the true true. Yeah, she tells him the true true, and old Georgie gets super racist. This is where like the the tension comes in because Zachary begins to have almost like a existential crisis, and yeah, and Georgie is like trying to convince him to kill Marinum because she's spreading the lies or whatever, and and it's all sacrilege. But Zachary is luckily able to overcome the urge, and uh, yeah, they both make it back down the mountain. Yeah, after after successfully sending that SOS. Unfortunately for them, when they make it back down, the village is just like demolished. Destroyed. Yeah, it's been ransacked by the Kona tribe. So they, I guess in some ways they left at the perfect time, but also at the worst time. Yeah, and you can you know he finds his sister, and she's raped and killed. The niece is still alive. She's hiding, right? And the niece is hiding. And then we get to the last part of the prophecy where, um, you know, it says something about like the leaders sleep in, don't slit his throat and he can't help himself and he slits that throat. So what's crazy is that it doesn't really affect the prophecy though, huh? Well, it doesn't end up affecting the outcome in a sense because um, I'm, you know, you assume that if he didn't slit the throat and then, you know, when the rest of the, the dudes come and they whistle for him he's supposed to, you know, come hobbling out of that that hut and he never does and so they catch on and, and start chasing zachary and catkin so that that would have happened either way well i think if you know if the if the chief if the the guy would i think he's a chief right? if the chief would have come out um when they whistle for him then they would have just ridden off together and that would have been it and they could have just hid zachary and catkin could have just hid and then so it would have been easier for them okay exactly but since they since you know he doesn't come out and they find him dead and then they catch Zachary and Catkin and chase them, chase them around and stuff. And then, you know, obviously he, you know, gets that giant scratch on his face. That giant. That scratch, was crazy, giant right? Cut because it, it came full circle. Like he was gonna kill yeah. Zachary the exact same way the brother-in-law was killed at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that was wild. But uh, yeah, I mean, Marinem comes through. <laughs> she comes through with her fucking futuristic prescient gun. 
And then you find out at the end that the SOS was heard and they were all saved. And then yeah. they're on they're on a new planet and you can see Earth from that planet. And Zachary is telling his story to all of his grandbabies. What was that like? 12 grandbabies or something? I didn't count. Damn, them, but they got there was, fucking there was a lot of busy. freaking grandbabies. Which means they had a lot of kids to have all those grandbabies, yeah. you know? Yeah, they got they got busy, but I, uh, that was cool. So they showed that Zachary and Marinim got married, and then yeah. they they stuck it out with each other. That's so cute. They're essentially living happily ever after. Yeah, and he says uh, at some point the the one granddaughter asks like, "Oh, do you still do you still love Grammy?" And he's like, "Hell Grammy no. is the best thing that ever happened to me," or something. And it was super cute. And then it shows Grammy, and she has horrible old makeup on. The old prosthetics. All the old makeup was terrible. Yeah. But if I had to choose the worst one, I have two. One more, one worse, even more worse than the, the other. The first one that I thought was super duper bad was Halle Berry's old Asian man makeup. That was terrible. What? I actually thought that was, it was interesting because I could not tell who the hell that was. Yeah, but it was still bad. That's true. You couldn't tell, but it was still bad. It wasn't until later that I looked it up. Yeah. Worst one was the Mexican lady. Yeah, I agree. That straight up just looked like she was wearing a mask that didn't move, you know? It looked like it was like prosthetics that was melting off. I'm just like, this yeah, the, this like doesn't just, look complete. It, it looked like they just bought a mask at a Halloween store and then tried to glue it on around the edges. It was so bad. So bad. I, like that scene, I was just like, that. her prosthetics look, look horrible. But, you know, the movie is great in general that is a wrap folks if you made it to the end of our podcast then hugo weaving is now going to terrorize you in whatever era you're in oh my god that's that's a horrible re- like that's a horrible uh, reward for reaching the end of our podcast <laughs> hugo weaving in any of his forms <laughs> is going to terrorize you how about you'll get to you'll get to reunite with the love of your life in all your reincarnations <laughs> there you go uh any final thoughts or closing comments it's definitely definitely a great movie and it was well done in my opinion and i liked even though it was super confusing the first time you watch it with all the jumping around yeah i think the jumping around definitely adds to it and i'm glad they didn't do it in the same chronological pyramid order thing that they did in the book i think it's more dramatic with the going the non-linear editing i can also appreciate like really good editing as well because it takes more work to do it this way but i think it tells a more compelling story and they all come to a climax at once yeah exactly resolve at once and and you know what all jokes aside hugo weaving is a fantastic actor and always seems to make just compelling villains no matter what that's true and tom hanks man i really like the fact that all of the eras they're just almost like entirely different. Like this is almost like an anthology that was fused into itself. Yeah. It was really cool. And I think you wouldn't be able to tell that the stories are supposed to be connected to each other somehow. If there wasn't like the birthmark. Mm. So did you have any uh, favorite eras at all? I actually really liked the last one. Um, that was your I thought it was favorite? yeah I I just thought it was super duper interesting to see an idea of the way that our language might deteriorate into something more primitive I guess something uh less sophisticated than even you know what we speak now That was a cool concept yeah it's I guess that it would make sense too because it's like once um technology is removed from 
from the equation, then it's like, what happens to the rest of us, you know? So we have to kind of go back to the basics. Yeah. And uh, so it was cool to see it at, at like, I guess what you could say the height of technology, which was the Neo soul mm-hmm. era. And then it's like, what happens after that? You know, once technology is gone. Yeah. Um, for me, the 1849, I don't know what it is about it. I just felt like it made for an interesting period piece drama and, I don't know. I, it's just I. I think I enjoyed the principal characters in that yeah. one, just like the the writing of the characters, and then the nineteen thirty six reminded me of a bit of Amadeus, mm-hmm. which I love. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, I I think it was just kind of nostalgic in that respect. I kind of like the love story between Frobisher and Sixsmith. Yeah. I already said before, I'm a big fan of cyberpunk, and let's be honest, twenty one forty four is the Wachowskis bread and butter like that's that's what they do you know is like futuristic stuff yeah to me it was visually striking and um I thought it was it was some of the most impactful storytelling in out of all of them because there was a lot at stake and I felt like it had a big impact on the era after you know the post-apocalyptic world afterwards and I thought that was pretty cool yeah so now we know what our future holds yeah <laughs> um shout out to Halle Berry cuz honestly in my opinion she had the most dramatic changes out of everyone. <laughs> yeah. I also thought that uh, I guess that creepy little Asian man cyberpunk doctor guy yeah. his name is Ovid and I thought that was that was fucking awesome. It, just in my opinion because um while he did look fucking weird, I think that kind of fits in like a cyberpunk setting because everyone looks fucking weird. Everyone's augmented. He has that fucking like eye thing, yeah. you know? So I think it just kind of worked in that setting. But this woman playing creepy little Asian man concept was done a hundred times better than in Twin Peaks. There's this character named Mr. Tojimura. It's almost insulting to the audience's intelligence. <laughs> I guess before we wrap up, are you watching anything that you would like to recommend, film or TV? Um, I'm watching The Last of Us show, which is pretty good. Noise, noise. I am as well. And uh, did you ever see Andrew play the game or did you play through it yourself? I watched a little bit of it and the zombies were definitely creepy. And the fact that they could like run fast and stuff, I didn't like that. Andrew wishes I would have played the game. But I was never, I guess, really, I think he knew that I wouldn't enjoy it as much as he did. But because it was a good story, he's glad that now there's a way that he can share that story with me. The whole fungal infection thing is is an interesting concept. So Yeah, I thought so too. Brenda and I, we watched The Menu on HBO Max. Oh yeah, I wanted to see that. And uh, it's good. It's good. It's weird because the cover art makes it look like it's going to be like a comedy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very much a very creepy thriller. Hmm. I recommend it though. I didn't expect that. Okay. I think I forgot to mention it last time. But uh, yeah, we saw the movie Babylon, and um, it's it's another one of those movies that's kind of based upon Hollywood and its glory days, and it, it, okay, it's actually more about like the early days of Hollywood as it was like getting into the golden years, and um, you know, it was like becoming like really glamorous and this and that. Some of the concepts are actually kind of similar to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in my mm. opinion. Obviously, without the Sharon Tate portion, but it's about like an actor that's 
seems kind of washed up, but, you know, he's still able to prove that he's got it. And then you got these people that are like up and coming that are trying to really get into it. And uh, I thought it was an interesting story. I like the acting. Top notch acting. That's good. And then one of my all time favorite movies, uh, Brenda and I recently saw Titanic. The 25th anniversary the edition 3D. in 3D. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, man, I've been wanting to watch Titanic in theaters for a long time, but I felt like it was never coming back. This was before they just decided to keep bringing old movies back. You never saw it in the theater originally? No, because Dang. I back then I was not in the mindset to like a movie like that. Yeah, I know. You know, I was I was in what like grade school. I know, when, and I saw I saw out. I think I saw it in the theater three times. <laughs> I think a lot of people saw it multiple times. Not eight-year-old you. (laughs) Best performing movies of all time. I was definitely into other movies early on, but as my taste changed, I eventually got around to to seeing it. And, you know, we had the the two VHS box set and everything. That was always annoying, having to get up and eject (laughs) the movie so we can pop in part two. Getting it cut in half. We ended up actually seeing the new Avatar, and we found specifically found a theater that was running it at a high frame rate. Oh, cool! So it's not yeah. all of them. No, you ha- it's, it specifically has to say that it's in high frame rate. So we found one that was nearby, and we went and saw it, and we enjoyed it. Very nice. It was tense. Like the whole second half of the movie was like not a nice, you know, outing that that I was hoping to get. Like this nice date with my husband, I was like super anxious the whole time. It was similar, but I felt like in some ways it may have even been done better than the first movie. Uh, yeah, in a way. I mean, like I said, I was kind of stressed out like the, the whole second half of the movie in a way that it definitely didn't have to be with the first one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was uh, obviously visually beautiful and stuff. Would I? Will I see the next one? Probably. Affliction Autos is available on all of those fancy streaming services you folks like to use. New episodes drop on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. If you enjoy our content, go ahead and leave us a nice review. It will be much appreciated. Thank you so much to listeners out there for joining Stephanie and I. This has been Affliction Autos Podcast Episode 22, Cloud Atlas, and we will see you all next time. True, true.